From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. If we wanted to get rid of the agency, we'd go a totally different route. Today, the acting head of the BLM insists the move out west is not a way to dismantle the agency, so key to public lands. Then, rural broadband could be interrupted if telecoms are forced to remove banned Chinese technology. Later, pianist Edith Ruiz is up for a Latin Grammy for an album recorded in Colorado that features composers working today. I think there are many positive things about doing music from living composers. One of them is that you get to interact with the composer, which is quite different from playing, let's say, classic music from other centuries. Plus, a rock and roll album 70 years in the making. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It controls more than 8 million acres of your public lands in Colorado, and fundamental changes are afoot at the Bureau of Land Management. The BLM is asking hundreds of employees to move out of Washington, D.C. and into various posts across the West. At least 27 of its leaders will be based in Grand Junction, soon to be the new BLM national headquarters. Well, during a recent visit to Grand Junction, Acting Director William Perry Pendley spoke to CPR's Stina Sieg, and Stina joins us with some highlights from this conversation. Hi, Stina. Hi, Ryan. Did you get any sense how he views the BLM's role in managing public lands? I should say, in his job before this, he ran a conservative legal foundation that often sued the government over its land policy. So he said that he thinks that BLM has the hardest job in federal government because, you know, its mandate is so diverse. It's managing one in 10 acres in the United States and it has to balance all these different needs and all these different uses. Yeah, you take most agencies, they have to, they can focus, laser-like focus on a particular mission, but we're about oil and gas, we're about mining, we're about logging, we're about ranching, we're about cattle grazing, we're about recreation, we're about preserving monuments and artifacts, so essentially we do it all. All right, with all those competing interests then, did he give you any sense of his priorities? I asked him about that and basically talked about the administration's commitment to preserving public land, not selling it. And that's even though Penley himself, he at one point for well, for years, actually, he advocated selling public land in the past. We love our clean air and clean water and safe lands. We have uh, gone out of our way to ensure we have a healthy environment. But then he very quickly pivoted into talking about economics. For most people, the most important environment in their lives is the ability to have a job, the ability to put food on the table and provide for their families. If there's things that keep people awake at night, it's that. And one of the commitments of the Trump administration is to the degree that we can do it, we're going to make it possible. So uh, we can combine the beauty of the West and also the ability to have jobs and provide for uh, opportunity for the American people. Stina, of course, there are 27 jobs we are particularly focused on here, the BLM positions being reassigned to Grand Junction. Uh, the BLM has signed a lease on offices there. Did Pendley give you any sense of how soon people might be starting to work in those offices? Well, it's complicated. You know, half of those positions are actually vacant, and they're hiring for them now. And at the same time, 
there are some existing people being asked to move, you know, both to Grand Junction and all over the West. And those people have 30 days to decide whether or not they're going to accept the transfers. The transfers are going out now. And if they do accept the transfer, they've got 90 days to move. So Penley is not going to be specific. But to me, that sounds like spring, early summer of next year. Since the announcement was made, I think in mid-July, about the changes at the BLM, uh, specifically moving its headquarters to Grand Junction, there's been a lot of criticism, some from Democratic politicians, but also from many current and former BLM employees. What did Pendley have to say about the controversy? So Pendley, he did, you know, he definitely acknowledged the controversy, but he also said that he just doesn't see this move and this change in the BLM as a partisan issue. And he thinks that Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, who happens to be from around here, from Rifle, just about an hour down the road, he thinks that Bernhardt doesn't see this as partisan either. You know, Penley points to some Democratic support of the move here in Colorado. I testified on the 10th of September on Capitol Hill, and uh, they played a short clip of our governor, Colorado governor, speaking in favor of the move and the jobs that were coming. Uh, two of my questioners were Democratic uh, representatives from Colorado, and both of them spoke in favor of the move. They had other questions of, of me and other issues, but not about the move. You know, but there definitely is still plenty of opposition to this move. I mean, even the Republican-controlled Senate actually refused to allocate money for the move. And, you know, the Interior Department is going ahead with it anyway. I mean, you've heard from critics who worry that moving the BLM's top brass to Grand Junction will weaken the Bureau, especially if a lot of veteran employees refuse to move. You talked earlier about their choice. Uh, What was Pendley's response to that? He was really blunt about that. He says that if people think the administration wants to weaken the BLM, that they're, quote, flat wrong. If we wanted to get rid of the agency, we, we'd go a, a, a totally different route. And I've testified frequently and I've said to all the employees, we don't want to lose a single employee. We want to find work for you and we hope we can find work for you in the BLM. But I will say, you know, I've talked to a lot of former BLM employees and they really worry about this. They worry that people will not want to move. There's going to be a brain drain. And they say many veteran staffers in particular don't want to leave D.C., that they'd rather find another Washington job than uproot their families and come to Colorado or somewhere else in the West. Okay, those are real concerns. What did Pendley say to them? He acknowledged them. He told me that people had told him to his face that they won't leave D.C., that they can't. They've got children in school. They've got elderly parents. But he said the same thing I'd heard from a lot of folks in favor of the move, which is that this shift in the BLM is bigger than existing staff, that it's about getting influential people out of Washington and into the land they oversee. Penley says right now more than 50 percent of those top decision makers in the agency are based in Washington. Penley says that right now if BLM staff in the field have ideas about something, about what to do about a problem, they have to relay that information back to D.C. and it gets bogged down going back and forth. And he wants the bureau to be more nimble. Let's put those experts, those decision makers out on the ground. Look, every day at the department, we make decisions based on a piece of paper, a photograph, and a map. And that's it. It's a lot of paper and a lot of photographs and a lot of maps, but not none of that makes up for being on the ground, actually physically walking on the ground, seeing the site, 
getting to know the people. And so uh, we're going to be put our top decision makers out here. Uh, they have a wealth of experience having been in Washington, D.C., and they can give that experience, the benefit of that experience to the local people, and the local people can also give to these new people uh, from Washington the benefit of their experience on the ground. But it should be said that critics, including an organization that's made up almost entirely of former BLM employees, say that those staffers based in Washington, that they need to be there, that their Washington expertise is vital to getting things done in the BLM, and that most of those headquarters staff in D.C. already have uh, experience out in the field. So it's not like the West is actually foreign to them at all. And one thing to note, Pendley himself is not moving to Grand Junction. No, that's because uh, Penley's job, so he is the acting head of the BLM, that job is actually one of the 60 or so that's staying in D.C. But, you know, Penley is a Wyoming native, and he definitely spoke ill of the traffic in D.C. and said that if his job were to move to Grand Junction, he'd be happy to live there. Stina, thank you for being with us. Thank you. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg sharing her recent conversation with acting BLM head William Perry Pendley. Public impeachment hearings into President Trump start tomorrow. We'll carry live coverage. Republicans continue to call the process Democrats have set up unfair. CPR's Caitlin Kim wanted to know how these proceedings compare to those of the Clinton era. So she tracked down Coloradans serving back then. Republican Bob Schaefer served in the House of Representatives for six years, leaving in 2003. He supported the Clinton impeachment inquiry. He sees one big difference between what happened then and now. The House only started its impeachment inquiry after the Star report laid out 11 possible grounds for impeachment. There were findings that preceded impeachment action in the U.S. Congress. And so what's different now is there are no findings, no independent findings that are preceding impeachment proceedings. Trump was investigated by special counsel Robert Mueller, but his report isn't the basis for this impeachment inquiry. House Democrats started it after a whistleblower complaint, making it partisan from the start. And that gets to another difference Schaefer sees between this impeachment process and the one he experienced. The Republican-led House during the Clinton impeachment process followed rules established by Democrats during the Nixon inquiry. So there was a very bipartisan effort to move forward strictly within those rules that were written by Democrats but orchestrated and followed by the Republicans that were in charge. So while Democrats argued that Clinton's transgressions weren't impeachment worthy, they didn't attack the process. Fellow Republican Scott McInnes, who served from 1993 to 2005, also says the process seemed more transparent back then, in part because the Clinton inquiry was run by the Judiciary Committee and not the Intelligence Committee, which regularly meets behind closed doors because of the sensitivity of the information it handles. The very basic, basic unfairness of putting this thing in the Intelligence Committee, where a chairman unilaterally, because of the power given to that committee, unilaterally could have these secret closed-door sessions. This has been one of the main charges levied by Republicans against Democrats in the Trump inquiry. It's been too secretive. But the Nixon and Clinton inquiries also had private phases. David Skaggs, the former Democratic representative for the 2nd Congressional District from 1987 to 1999, served on the Intelligence Committee. He disputes the idea that private impeachment hearings are nefarious or unfair. There are hearings and there are hearings. So there are closed hearings when you're basically in in 
investigative mode and you want to be careful what information is heard by and affects the testimony of other witnesses. In the Clinton impeachment, that investigative mode involved a grand jury, which also takes secret testimony. Skaggs believes now that the House is moving into the public portion of the Trump inquiry, including allowing the president or his attorneys to cross-examine witnesses, the process will follow what happened in 1998. I think it's going to start to look procedurally more like what preceded the floor votes on impeachment for Clinton. But for Skaggs, a key difference is the nature of the charges. Clinton was impeached for lying under oath over personal behavior. With Trump, it's about official behavior. One thing does echo today for Skaggs, the partisanship. In my memory, uh, it was clear that the Republican majority was hell-bent on getting Clinton. And, uh, you know, the procedural stuff was an afterthought. Skaggs and his Republican colleagues from the Clinton impeachment do agree on one thing, that there were more bipartisan friendships in Congress during that process, which made it possible for the House to keep working on other issues and move past the impeachment. That doesn't seem to be the case today. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Broadband is available to 86% of rural Colorado households, but many of the telecoms that provide the service use technology from a Chinese firm that's been banned by the federal government. The cost to rip and replace this tech nationwide could be a billion dollars for rural providers, according to one estimate. Tamara Chuang of the Colorado Sun has been looking into this in Colorado. Tamara, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Brian. And let's start with the FCC's ban on Huawei Technologies and ZTE. Remind us just briefly what led to the ban. Well, lots of things led to the ban. I mean, there's accusations of spyware, um, Chinese companies building back doors into their equipment. There was a case with T-Mobile several years ago where some Huawei engineers came in and, and took pictures of T-Mobile technology um, for their possibly own use. There was a case and a lawsuit. And that's what this new executive order by President Trump, it came out in May. It bans certain foreign services that may build backdoors into their technology. Okay, so there's the question of spying here. There's also the question, it sounds like, of intellectual property theft. Next week, the FCC will vote on a two-part proposal. The first would bar telecom companies from using federal funds to buy equipment from the Chinese makers. The second would mandate that these companies remove banned equipment that's already been installed. That seems like a huge undertaking for rural providers. Uh, what would be the effect on them? A lot of things. They would actually have to stop, you know, stop service, um, potentially, or they would have to hire someone else to provide the service. They would have to buy new equipment. And the reason why they went with Huawei is because it was cheaper than everyone else. Because if you're a rural broadband company, you don't have a lot of money. So the idea isn't just the cost of ripping, but also the replacement would be more expensive. Right. Uh, but other services, um, like this company in Fort Morgan, for example, Viera Wireless, they make $50 million a year on roaming fees. So just anyone coming through using their service from AT&T or something like that, they roam in Viero's service and the company makes money. So they lose that. They lose that ability, at least temporarily, uh, while they try to replace it. And the question is, could they afford to do so? Would there be federal help 
for some of these rural telecom? That's what's new, and that's what they're talking about now. So over the uh, last month, I believe, the uh, U.S. Congress proposed, well, uh, the Energy Committee proposed a bill that would provide a billion dollars to help these rural telecoms. And that's also something the FCC is going to look into. You know, they're going to do a report and see, well, how much would this actually cost? Are there really the vulnerabilities that the federal government fears that there are? I think there could be. When I interviewed security and privacy analysts, they were concerned about not having proof that there have been these security violations. And if the government is going to ban it, then they should share, well, this is what we found. Here's the instances of security breaches. But on the other hand, um, privacy advocates have told me, you know, anyone can build in backdoors. Uh, there's a lot of insecurity in our networks anyway. Mm. Um, that that might not be specific to Huawei, for instance. Right. It, it could be to anyone because there's a lot of equipment built in China that's made by U.S. companies. Okay. So the picture is unclear there, really. Uh, or that the vulnerabilities are at all exclusive to one company. Uh, let's go back to what this might mean for rural Colorado. Um, what would service look like in the interim? I mean, are you just talking dial-up at that point or what? <laughs> if these rural cities are lucky and have a second provider, a broadband provider, you know, the customers can switch. But being rural broadband, that is unlikely or the service isn't as good. Um, that's why there's uh, the state of Colorado has focused on getting broadband to rural areas. Mm -hmm. They recently started a new grant program in, in the past couple of years that gives grants to private companies to build the technology. And when I was talking to the Colorado Broadband Office, they said, you know, without the grants, these aren't broadband's not getting built. Is this a concern in urban areas? We've talked a lot about rural. Well, in urban areas, you've got, um, and, and Huawei's equipment is mostly wireless technology. So maybe T-Mobile's, um, Verizon's, that sort of wireless. But uh, in urban areas, the main wireless companies aren't using band equipment, at okay. least right, no longer. So that's why the vulnerability is more on rural Colorado. Thanks for sharing this reporting with us, Tamara. Thank you. Tamara Chung covers business at the Colorado Sun. The century-old Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe train depot in Lamar, Colorado, is a tourist attraction and a testament to the town's history. But until this year, it wasn't actually recognized as a historic place. CPR's Joella Bauman looked into why. The Lamar Train Depot is a deep brick-red building with a peaked roof and green doors and window trim. It's quaint. It's surrounded by symbols of the Old West. An old steam locomotive, a windmill and a water tower, a statue of a cowboy roping a bull. It's a piece of history itself. So imagine the surprise when... We got to talking about the depot, and we actually thought it was on the National Register, and the more research we did, we found that it was not. That's Angie Q, who works for the city of Lamar. After learning the depot was not among the county's 15 recognized historic places, she reached out to the state's preservation office at History Colorado to find out a way to make that happen. 
So there is an application process, and it asks a lot of details about the property. There are a lot of components to it when it comes to the history of the building, what's the architecture of the building, what it's used for today, and how all of those tie together. From first inquiry to nomination, the process took about a year. Q said in that time she learned about the importance of the train depot, how it contributed to the development along the Arkansas River. She also learned an interesting story about how the town of Lamar was founded, thanks in part to the depot. The depot used to be located three miles to the east of where it is now, and the property owner did not want to give that property up. And so they lured him away with a false telegram. During the nights, the community went over and picked it up on the train and relocated to where it is today. So there's a really unique history about how the stolen depot became the heart of downtown and when Lamar was officially founded. The depot earned its historic designation in July. Today it's home to Lamar's Welcome Center, Chamber of Commerce, and continues to serve as an Amtrak stop. Q said she expects the recognition will bring more tourism to the area. I just think that's going to be an attraction to not only see the depot, but to see other nominated properties that are in the area. And I think you can make a whole tourism route as you travel across Colorado or wherever you're going and see a part of history. For CPR News, I'm Joella Bauman. Now, there's something Q didn't mention about the train station. We gave you a hint earlier. On the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe is a song written about the famed train. In 1944, American composers Harry Warren and Johnny Mercer published the hit. It earned an Academy Award for Best Original Song in 46, after Judy Garland sang it in The Harvey Girls. Do you hear that whistle down the line? I figure that it's engine number 49. She's the only one that'll sound that way on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. All aboard, she's on her way. See the old smoke rising round the bend. I reckon that she knows she's gonna meet a friend. Folks around these parts get the time of day from the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour in a very musical way with a pianist nominated for a Latin Grammy and a rock album 70 years in the making. Ryan Warner, you are with CPR News. And they'll all want lifts to Brown's Hotel Cause lots of them been traveling for quite a spell All the way from Philadelphia On the Atchison, Topeka and the Santa Fe Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An album nominated for a Latin Grammy was recorded in Colorado. Pianist Edith Ruiz first visited CU Boulder's Grusin Music Hall in 2017 to perform with her chamber music quintet Onyx Ensemble. And she liked the venue so much, she came back to record her debut solo album, Arboles de Vidrio. That means glass trees.
Ruiz collaborated with CU's staff to make the album in just one week. And she'll find out Thursday if she's won the Latin Grammy. Ruiz joins us by phone from her home in Mexico City. Edith, thanks for being with us. Thank you for calling. I'm really happy to talk with you. As I said, your first visit to Boulder was for a chamber music performance. What was it about Grusin Music Hall, which seats about 500, uh, that made you realize this is the place I'm going to record an album? I visited with Onyx Ensemble. We were doing a residence at the university, and we played a couple of concerts there. I gave a master class, and we also had workshops. So it was quite a bit of time at the hall, and I just found the pianos were really nice. They had taken really good care of them, and the acoustics were really nice. So after working a week there, we just thought, well, this might be a really good place to record. It's, it's far interesting. Away from home, but... <laughs> far away from home, indeed, right. But maybe that's good, a, a change of scene when you're making a record. Yeah, I just went there for like one whole week, and that gets you off of your regular activities. So I, I think it was actually very helpful. <laughs> I find it charming that you say the pianos were well cared for. Is that not something you can expect everywhere? That's something you cannot expect everywhere. <laughs> I mean, pianos are expensive and expensive to take care of. I mean, of course, there's always good pianos all around the world, uh-huh. but um, not always and not everywhere. <laughs> well, solo music isn't exactly your bread and butter. Your master's degree is in collaborative piano, and you've spent 15 years playing with four other musicians in Onyx Ensemble. Why make a solo album? Well, this solo album is part of a bigger project from Onyx Ensemble, we decided that each one of the members of the quintet will record a solo album. Piano might not sound very strange to do a piano solo, uh-huh. but there's like violin solo, clarinet solo, cello solo, flute solo, and piano solo. The idea was to feature each one of us with our own voice and how we add up everything in the quintet. When you talk about voice, you don't mean literal voice. It's not that you're singing, but your voice as a pianist. Exactly. As a a person, you know, yes, a musician, yeah. I wonder if that makes the chamber group stronger, if each of you explores sort of your own passion, your own ability, and then you, you maybe bring that sense back to the group. Yes, I think that helps a lot. And not only because we grow, each one of us, we grow as a group, And I think we also grow in repertoire, because then as an ensemble, when we have concerts, we can also play alone, duos, trios, quintets. And I think that also helps a lot for the audience, you know, because then you can hear so many different faces, (laughs) let's say, of the music and everything we can do. Did this make you nervous? Like, there's safety in numbers, and then here you are laid bare, right? (laughs) Well... I guess, no, I wouldn't say I was nervous. I mean, I have played solo when I did all my bachelor degree and all that, and <laughs> sometimes I have played solo. It's just not something I do, like, every day. But then when the project was in front of me, you know, you just do your job that you have been taught to do, and then you have to enjoy it. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. <laughs>
listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is pianist Edith Ruiz, who recorded her album Arboles de Vidrio, Glass Trees, at CU Boulder's Grusen Music Hall. The record is up for a Latin Grammy. And you, you recorded this in the span of one week. What were the days like? It sounds fairly intense, Edith. Well, first they were cold for me. <laughs> I went there in January. So it was a very intense week. Um, I recorded on Monday. I would listen to the whole session and, you know, listen to the takes and everything on Tuesday and prepare the next pieces. And then on Wednesday, I would record and that way on. So I, would, I recorded Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I checked the sessions Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. I arrived there on a Sunday and came back to Mexico the next Sunday. Oh, my goodness. So yeah. I didn't have much time to enjoy Boulder, I have to say. <laughs> Most, <laughs> mostly an, an indoor experience, huh? It was. <laughs> yes, it was. Did you limit yourself to a certain number of takes? Like, you know, aware that your deadline was coming, did you say, I, I can't do this over 20 times? It's just not feasible. No, I never thought about the number of takes. I mean, there are things that were just good at the first or second take and others took longer. It, it depends on the piece I was playing. But I guess I did it until I got the thing I wanted. The thing you wanted. <laughs> well, give us an example of yeah. a track that you hit out of the park the first time. I want to hear it. Uh, I guess um, there's a piece by Gabi Ortiz, Patio Serenos, which is one of my favorite pieces on the CD. That one, I think I had a very good track from the beginning. And even though I had it, I still did it two more times just in case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I had I had a lot of things one more to choose. That was a very nice piece that got out really well, I think. <laughs> That's a good example. Patio Serenos. You know, throughout your career, you have championed contemporary classical music with Onyx Ensemble and again on this record, which is all music by living composers. Why is that your focus? I think as musicians of the 21st century, we should be doing the music of our century. I mean, it's great to do Mozart, Beethoven and Brahms. That's wonderful. But uh, someone has to be doing also what is being uh, written today the music that is being done today. So I think there are many positive things about doing uh, music from living composers. One of them is that you get to interact with the composer, Mm. which is quite different from playing, uh, let's say, classic music from other centuries. Uh, And it gives you a different perspective of the score. And I think it's a way of helping also the composers to get their music known all over the world. This album, as we've said, is called Arboles de Vidrio, Glass Trees in English. What's the significance of that title? Well, Arboles de Vidrio, I think I could explain this as an image, as a metaphor. Most of the composers I 
I recorded, they somehow look at the roots, either at their past or at the tradition in music from other composers or other century music. So I just think how a tree, you look at it and it looks beautiful, but there's so much down in the roots that give life to that tree. And that tree has all these different branches uh, with all the little leaves, <laughs> so they can go to some like different directions. So I would say that's the metaphor, like how each composer looks at their own roots, either from the music tradition or from their own lives, and then they just produce these beautiful branches that point towards very different directions in their own style of music. And I suppose glass is transparent, so it's very easy to see through to the core of something. Yes, it sounds nice also. You know? <laughs> it also <laughs> sounds nice. <laughs> it does, it does sound nice. Yeah, <laughs> and I... it makes this idea of clear sound, which I think it's also in the theme. <laughs> Right before we go, Edith Ruiz, I want to ask you about playing the piano as a kid. Uh, was was your first introduction being told by your parents that you had to play? Oh no, no, no! Um, I was four years old when I told my parents I wanted to play the piano. Uh, my parents are not musicians. My father is an engineer, and my mother she's an actuary. An actuary. And. Um, they both sang in a choir at church, so I heard them sing all the time, and I would sing in the children's choir and that kind of thing. So I had this musical context, but only like from church. Mm. My mom loves uh, classic music, so she would listen to the radio with classic music all day long. But there was no other context, like uh, like somebody telling me to be a musician or to play an instrument. I just told my parents I had wanted to play the piano when I was four years old. I don't know where that came out from. (laughs) And they were so nice with me. They just uh, looked for the opportunity for me to do it. And you didn't have a piano in your home at that time? Not at that time. So they just uh, bought a piano and looked for some piano lessons for me. And I just started and I'm still playing. And you're still playing and nominated for a Latin Grammy. So you've done well for yourself. Edith, thanks so much. Well, thank you for the chance to talk with you and with your audience. We'll see what happens. Pianist Edith Ruiz. She recorded Arboles de Vidrio, Glass Trees, at CU Boulder's Grusen Music Hall. The record is up for a Latin Grammy. The ceremony is Thursday in Las Vegas, hosted by Ricky Martin, among others. And we'll be right back with a solo rock album, 70 Years in the Making, and some great stories about the early rock scene in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Even the best vehicles have an expiration date, but you can ensure that your old four-wheeled friend lives on by donating it to CPR. Help support Colorado Public Radio. Learn how on the support page at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Mark Bliesner has spent more than 50 years in rock and roll. He cut his teeth playing in bands in Chicago, then Los Angeles. He moved to Colorado in the 1970s, became a music critic, and worked as a publicist for famed concert promoter Barry Fay. Bliesner went on to manage acts like Alan Parsons, Big Head Todd of the Monsters, and Lyle Lovett. Now, at age 70... Bliesner has started yet another chapter in his musical life. He recently released his debut solo album called Jurassic Mark. Bliesner recorded most of the instruments on Jurassic Mark himself. His songs examine and sometimes poke fun at the music industry, rock and roll itself, and aging. And Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks. Nice to be here. Do you feel Jurassic? I feel a little (laughs) Jurassic, yeah, but not in a bad way. What makes you feel Jurassic in rock? Just the notion of turning 70 is something that needs to be dealt with in rock and roll. Yeah? Well, it's not often dealt with, you know. People uh, tend to write about youth and write about young ideas. Nothing wrong with that, but when you're 70, you might want to write about older ideas, Jurassic ideas. Jurassic ideas. Do the Rolling Stones prove that wrong, though? Oh, I I think they prove it extremely Jurassic. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I understand when you moved to Colorado in 1976, it was uh, to get away from the music business uh, you'd played with acts like Humpback Whale and Question Mark and the Mysterians. Why at that point did you want a bit of a reprieve from the rock and roll scene? Just making my living by being a itinerant musician seemed like a bit of a dead end. I felt like I was getting old. I was 25, I guess. And it just seemed like time to um, hang up my sticks, if you will, as a drummer. What was hard about that life? Everything, uh, getting paid was extremely hard. Uh, something I learned early was how to have a successful fight with a club owner at 3.30 in the morning trying to get the money that they had promised. They uh, would try to short you or not pay you at all? Or both, what? both. You know, very very common, not not unusual. Uh, it's, it's a very hard life. You spend the, the whole day uh, trying to get to that uh, 90 minutes you might perform. And that whole day can be a little rough. And uh, certainly the interplay and the interpersonal relationships between bands and within a band is quite an interesting dichotomy to uh, be experiencing 24 hours a day. Right. You have a group of artists, close-knit, in tight quarters, not always in the nicest quarters either, with the stress of performing, the financial stress. I'm curious, what did club owners tell you when they try not to pay you? Uh, first, they'd try and ignore you, just not be available, you know, at, at the point. It's like, where's the guy? And it's like, well, he's not here. Huh. Uh, or just to short you, you know, not, not unusual. You know, you guys were too loud, too soft, too whatever. I see. So they'd try to make some hay of yeah, your Yeah, we didn't make any money at the bar tonight. 
It did not take long for your career in Colorado to get going, though. One of your first jobs was writer and editor for the Rocky Mountain Musical Express. That was a monthly music paper out of Boulder. How was it to be a rock journalist after being a rock musician? It it seemed like a natural progression. Um, you know, how I got into it, I had a, a friend who was the editor at that paper, and uh, he was also a musician. We'd get together and play once in a while. He said, you know a lot about music. You should write about it. And I said, write about it? You know, I've, I don't want to do that. And he said, you should try it. So I tried it, and I found that I did know a lot about music. You know, and the one thing I... Uh, quickly learned is that in my days traveling around and being a drummer, I got a great education. I learned a lot about music. I learned a lot about the music business. I, I learned more than just how to get that money out of the club owner or how to fit everything <laughs> in the van at the end of the night. What were your early pieces about? What did you write about? Oh, I, you know, it was um, 1976, 77 when I was writing there. So there was so much to write about. The, you know, it was the, the Ramones and Mink Deville and Blondie and Devo and uh, the Boomtown Rats and the Stranglers and, you know, a lot of interesting emerging music at that time. And I was in a good position being in this part of the world in that there weren't a lot of writers in the middle of the country who were that interested in that stuff at that point. You know, certainly there were on the coast, but in the middle of the country, I found it very easy to get interviews with pretty much whoever I wanted to. The rock and roller, the writer, the promoter, lots of labels we can apply to Mark Bliesner joins us. We're talking about his long career in music and in Colorado. You were a champion of early punk rock acts like uh, Talking Heads, Blondie. You came up with the name Dead Kennedys. I did. For uh, Boulder native Jello Biafra's influential punk band. And one of your songs recently appeared on an early punk rock compilation from Soul Jazz Records, a challenging track called Just a Patsy, which you released under the name Radio Pete. What do you think of that track today? It sounds a bit noisy, but uh, takes me right back to the moment of recording it in probably 1976. Just recording at home, bouncing back and forth on a cassette machine, you know, adding tracks and having fun. And, and again, exploring that notion of Lee Harvey Oswald, the candy assassination, something which obviously colored my life from an early age. That had an impact on you. It influenced your writing. Sure, certainly. And just a Patsy was an Oswald reference. Yes. Um, you know, when um, Oswald was uh, uh, taken into custody by the police, when they put him up before the press, that was his first word, yeah, that's just what, a Patsy. That's what he proclaimed. Yeah. You began working with the illustrious Colorado concert promoter Barry Fay. This is the guy who brought Led Zeppelin to North America who helped you two tape Under a Blood Red Sky at Red Rocks. He hired you as a publicist when you had no real publicity experience. What do you think he saw in you? Um, I'm not, I, I, I think he saw someone who had the ability to uh, get a point across, someone who would work with him, not against him. And um, um, a, as a 
as a freelance writer and working at the Rocky Mountain Musical Express, I learned a lot about publicity because I was dealing with publicists every day to yeah. get my interviews and to just to make things happen. And so I, I knew what a publicist did, although I'd never been one. But when Barry hired me, told me to get down to his office, and I went down to his office, I said, what do I do? And he said, you're a publicist. We never had a publicist. And, and it was terrific because I found myself sitting behind a desk for the first time. And again, it was at that, that time that I realized, you know, I know something about this business. I've learned quite a lot aside from how to play the drums over the years. What's your best Barry Fay story? Oh, I, I don't know where to begin. Uh, and I can't think of any that I could tell on, on, <laughs> on the radio. He was, but, he was a colorful character. Well, how about this? What, what about an early band you helped publicize locally? Well, you know, getting getting back to Barry. Yeah. You, you know, Barry gave me tremendous opportunity to to work with a lot of bands. You know, I did all the I did publicity for all the stadium dates on the 1981 Rolling Stones tour, and all the uh, did publicity for the um, all the stadium dates on the first farewell tour of the Who in 1982, and uh, you know, got to work with an, an awful lot of awful lot of international bands. In in my days as a publicist, uh, I worked with a band called Hot Rise, who oh, were a lo- yes. local, very influential, very important bluegrass band, and kind of the precursor of the jam band craze in Colorado, if, if you will. And so that, in terms of local bands, they were somebody that I really enjoyed working with as a publicist. And you got to see that evolution. So this year, you released your debut solo album. At age 70, you've been writing songs for decades. Why do you think it took so long to put something out? Oh, you know, I've I, I've always written, I've always recorded, done home recording, and um, in, in the last two years or so, as my interest and patience with the music business has waned, you, you know, I I I really wanted to spend some time uh, revisiting what really got me excited in the beginning. So I, I just set about to record, and I booked some studio time at Sparky the Dog Studios in Sunnyside. and The neighborhood of Denver. Yes, and, and um, just recorded for pleasure and, and had no intention of releasing anything. And friends would listen to things. I'd play things for them, and they'd go, you should release this. You should put an album on it. i go, the world has too many albums. You know, all the attorneys in the world are releasing albums. Everybody's in a band. <laughs> you don't need another band. You don't need another album. But... As the surreal reality of my 70th birthday uh, pulled into view, I thought, you know, I should kind of take the mickey out of myself, kind of make fun of turning 70. So I thought, well, why not pull through these tracks and assemble an album? So that's how we got to Jurassic Mark. This is the closing track on the record, Continental Divide. It's maybe a little jaded. What frustrates you about the music industry? Everything. Um, you know, the, um, 
the, the way people consume music today, it, it, it's different. I, maybe it's not frustrating, but... Um, That's interesting. That's the consumer, not necessarily the industry. Yeah, but it's, it's colored everything because music is not the... Uh, the be-all and end-all it once was. You, you know, people are on to the next thing. You're always one click away. And and that's a bit frustrating, the lack of attention span that people within the industry and the fans give to the music. You need to listen to a whole album once in a while. You need to just sit down, listen to the whole thing. And yet you have uh, younger consumers who are just, like, eating up vinyl. Well, there, you know, there, there is a comeback for vinyl, but it's, you know, uh, again, it's really rather small in, in light of the whole streaming experience. Nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's different today. Thanks so much for speaking with us. It's been a joy. Thank you. And I think that it's been said by somebody up ahead. new album from Denver's Mark Leisner is Jurassic Mark. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Since we got the old guys to show us how, I don't see why we can't start right